Good evening and thank you for coming to the bookstore. This is our first speaker of the fall 2008 Centennial Speaker Series. Our guest this evening is Ana Castillo, who is the award-winning author of 11, 12 titles that I have here for you and, the, and has been awarded numerous awards. She has won the American Book Award, the Carl Sandburg Award, and the Mountains and Plains Bookseller Award, and fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts in Fiction and Poetry. She has been awarded the Sorwana Achievement Award by the Mexican Fine Arts Center Museum in Chicago, and in 2006, she was the winner of the Independent Publisher Storyteller Award of the Year. Originally from Chicago, she attended Chicago City College for two years and then graduated from Northeastern Illinois University with a BA in Art and a minor in Secondary Education. Her Master's was earned in Latin American and Caribbean Studies from the University of Chicago. She was a community activist. <laughs> I'm kind of proud of the fact that she spent time doing that. And she taught uh, through the 70s English as a second language and Mexican and Mex Mexican American history in Chicago and in San Francisco. She earned her doctorate in American studies uh, from the University of Bremen in Germany. I'd like to hear that story. I don't I don't know how she ended up in there, but I bet it was fun. Uh, Anna has always been active in our area here. I've worked with her, I believe, twice for Border Book Festival. She was the featured speaker. She spoke for us uh, two years ago with uh, Enlace and Chicano Programs. And tonight, I'm partnered with Chicano Programs to present her with her new book, The Guardians. Please uh, join me in welcoming Ana Castillo. Thank you. I don't know, I'm gonna try to project my voice and I think maybe you might be able to hear me anyway, so let me know if you can hear me with that. Can you hear me without the mic? Okay. Yes. It sounds a little strange. It's probably me. I know. Mean, it's like there's a, some echo there. So, uh, well, I want to thank uh, Frankie for inviting me here to the um, to the bookstore this evening. Um, uh, I have done a, a few things here with NMSU, and thank you, sir. And uh, happy to be back. Um, I um, have lived all over this country. I was uh, originally from Chicago, and I lived there in, um, most recently in my life uh, and taught there, was teaching at a university there. Um, uh, but many years ago, when I wrote a novel called So Far From God, I was living in northern New Mexico in Albuquerque. Um, I missed New Mexico, and about five years ago, I found a little place in a town next uh, next to, in a town that I never had heard of, and next to a village that I didn't know that my house was in. Um, but uh, I've made my home there, and so I've traveled back and forth all over the place. Um, last year I was teaching in Boston, but I, I kept, uh, kept my place here, so this is home for me now. Uh, so um, one of the things I was looking forward to in returning to New Mexico was um, the sense of, um, of um, being part of the environment that I felt like when I lived in northern New Mexico, and that was uh, the, the further out in the desert I get, I, I feel more at home. So I'm living out in the desert, and um, that has served as the inspiration for the last novel that I wrote and published um, last year, one year ago, and it just came out in paperback this week, um, last uh, last week, uh, right after Labor Day, uh, it's called *The Guardians*. Um, I was thinking about writing a, a novel um, and where to begin. Well, the beginning of a novel, for those of you who want to write novels or or struggling uh, writers, a novel usually comes with the question. The question that came to me, or a story comes with the question, but a novel is like a big project. And so the question for me one morning out there in the desert in this little village that I had never heard of, next to a town that I had not heard of, watching the Franklin Mountains in the morning, it was a, it was a like January, uh, 
very foggy, you know how it gets in those winter mornings, sometimes you can't see them. And I began to think, this is about uh, 2005, I think, and I began to think that morning as I was having my coffee and looking at the mountains, what would it be like to be a person who was trying to cross over from the other side that night with the cold that we had had the night before, the freezing temperatures that we have uh, in the desert, and he would be waiting for safe passage. So that was my first question. And then the second question that I asked myself was, what would it be like to be a loved one on this side waiting for someone that you love crossing over, waiting for safe passage? So I went to my laptop and I wrote the first chapter as a short story. So I, I'll start by sharing a few pages from the beginning of The Guardians with you which I wrote that morning when I asked that question. And this is told uh, in a quartet of four voices, but this, the first voice that came to me was a woman by the name of Regina, Regina. It was raining all night, hard and heavy, making the land shiver, all the bare ocotillo and all the prickly pear. In the morning, we found the tall yucca collapsed in the front yard. Everything is wet and gray, so the day has not made itself known yet. It is something in between. As usual, I'm anxious. Behind the fog are Los Franklins. Behind those mountains is my brother, waiting. On this side, we're waiting too. My 15-year-old nephew, Gabo, and his dog, La Winnie. Winnie has one eye now. She got it stuck by a staghorn cactus that pulled it right out. Blood everywhere that day. By the time Gabo got home from his after-school baggers job at El Sure Safe, I was back from the vets with Winnie, rocking her like a baby. You couldn't blame the dog for being upset, losing her eye and all. I kept Gabo this time around because I want him to finish high school. I don't care what the authorities say about his legal status. We'll work it out, I say to Gabo who, when he was barely walking, I changed his diapers, which I also tell him. He's still embarrassed to be seen in his boxers. That's okay. I'm embarrassed to be seen in mine, too. Thirty years of being widowed? You better believe I dress for comfort. Stop all this morning, my mama used to say. You were only married six months. The guy was a drug addict, por Dios. She actually would say that and repeat it, even though Junior died fighting for his country. That's why we got married. He was being shipped off to Vietnam. If the coroner suggested he had needle tracks, well, I don't know about that. Mama always had a way of turning things around for me to see them in the worst light possible. It's probably not a nice thing to say you are glad your mother's dead, but I am glad she's not around. Can I say that and not worry about a stretch in purgatory? <laughs> then I'll say that. We've been waiting a week, me and Gobble, for his dad to come back. He's been back and forth across that desert, dodging the border patrol so many times. You think he wouldn't even need a coyote no more. The problem is, the coyotes and narcos own the desert now. You look out there, you see thorny cactus, tumbleweed, and sand soil forever, and you think, no, there's nothing out there. But you know what? They're out there. Los mero mero cabrones. The drug traffickers and body traffickers, which are worse? I can't say. So the problem is, Rafa, my brother, can't just come across without paying somebody. Eight days ago, we got a call. It was a woman's voice. She said in Spanish that Rafa is all right and that he was coming in a few days, so we had better have the balance of the money ready. Who did those people think they were, I asked myself. That woman on the phone acted so damn cocky. I swear, if I knew who she was, I'd report her to the authorities, lock her up for five years. How dare she treat people like that, take advantage of their poverty and laws that force people to crawl on their bellies for a chance to make it. 
Okay, I'm going to stop there this morning, um, this afternoon, this evening, where am I at? <laughs> because I want to talk about it. Frankie's been so um, generous in bringing various of my other books um, here, and they're on display, and I want to talk a little bit about them. Uh, she gave out my part of my CV, my resume, and, and introduced to me, and I, I think you may have noticed that my degrees are not in creative writing. I started out, yes, indeed, um, uh, as a teenager in, in, in my era, working um, in my community, and as a, became very politicized when I was still in high school, and that pretty much saved my life, and I was able to continue um, uh, pursuing uh, an education as well as the things that I believe in. Um, so I started writing very young um, uh, poetry. Um, I didn't see myself as a writer. I didn't think I would be a writer, but I was writing poetry for many years. Uh, I still go back to it, and there's some of my books of poems here. I want to share a little bit of that with you. And what I did with my activism and my conscientization was I would put that in my poetry, and that's why I would write. Um, some years ago, so I've been writing about 35 years now, so covered a lot of territory in our history of this country and in the world. And some years ago, 2001 as a matter of fact, I had been invited to do uh, some readings in the Middle East, a little tour in the Middle East. This was uh, just before 9-11. Well, when 9-11 happened, I thought, well, they probably canceled that, so that's canceled. And then I found out that it wasn't canceled, and so I was going anyway. I was like the only person in American Airlines going that way, in that direction. It was just shortly after 9-11. This book of poems, I Ask the Impossible, had just come out like that month or something. And I really hadn't looked at it very much. And um, so I was there, and I was uh, traveling to different countries. And the night that I was going to return to the United States, I was in Amman, Jordan, and we get a notice in the hotel and so on that uh, this country had started bombing Afghanistan. I was just about to go down, down to my reading of all um, Arabians, all mixed of mixture of, of, of different diverse people from the Middle East, Jordanians, and uh, people who work with different international organizations. And so I, I wondered what I was going to read to them that day while my country has begun to bomb uh, Afghanistan. And I looked through my book of poems that I was reading from, and I found this poem, and I read it to them. It was written in 1998. It's dated here, and it's called while I was gone, a war began. While I was gone, a war began. Every day I asked friends in Rome to translate the news. It seems I saw this story in a Hollywood movie or on a Taco Bell commercial, maybe in an ad for sunglasses or summer wear shown somewhere for promotional purposes. Hadn't I seen it in an underground cartoon a sinister chic versus John Wayne. Remembering Revelation, I wanted to laugh, the way a non-believer remembers Sunday school and laughs, which is to say, after flood and rains, drought and despair, abrupt invasions, disease and famine everywhere, we're still left dumbfounded at the persistence of fiction. While I was gone, continents exploded. The Congo, Ireland, Mexico, to name a few places. At this rate, one day soon, they won't exist at all. It's only a speculation, of course. What good have all the great writers done? An Italian dissident asked, as if this new war were my personal charge. What good your poems, your good intentions, your thoughts, all for the common good. What lives have they saved? 
What mouths do they feed? What good is your blue passport when your American plane blows up? The Italian dissident asked in a rage. Forced out of his country, the poor African selling trinkets in Italy does not hesitate to kill other blacks not of his tribe. Who is the bad guy? Who is the last racist? Who colonizes in the 21st century best? The Mexican official over the Indian or the gringo ranchero over the Mexican illegal? I hope for your sake your poems become missiles, the dissident said. He lit a cigarette, held it to his yellow teeth. I hope for my sake too. I tried, he said. I did not write books or have sons, but I gave my life and now I don't care. Again, I had nothing to give but a few words which I thought then to keep to myself for all their apparent uselessness. We drank some wine instead made from his father's vineyard. We trapped the rat getting into the vat. We watched another red sunset over the fields. At dawn, I left, returning to the silence of the press when it has no sordid scandal to report, as if we should not be scandalized by surprise bombing over any city at night, bomb scandalizing the sanctity of night. And that was 1998, Chicago. When I moved from my poetry to trying to write fiction, I had decided that everybody writes poetry. Everyone writes poetry. Not everybody reads poetry. And nobody buys poetry. So I decided to move over to try to move over to Gain a, get a new audience, I was hoping, and I started to teach myself how to write short stories. And that, was, that came eventually in a collection <coughs> called Lover Boys, which has just come out in a new cover, new edition this year. It's, it covers about 15 years of my writing, including my very first official short stories to uh, the most recent ones when that book came out. Since it's here and it's brand new, it's out here. Um, I want to share a very short, uh, short story with you. Um, it's called A Mother's Wish. He is the most perfect child in the universe. She is the only mother. If anything ever happened to you, I'd kill myself, she whispers to him, and punctuates her vow with the moist kiss on her baby's cheek. In fact, nothing will happen to him. Aside from the common childhood illnesses and his bouts of rebellion and brooding during adolescence, and finally leaving her once he is grown, she won't have to kill herself. Instead, she'll take a ceramics class at the community college downtown. On Saturday nights, she'll go to the sundown lounge and practice her two-step. Every Mother's Day, without fail, he'll call her from wherever it is that life finds him. She'll die happy, and he won't ever die. And uh, um, I just want to mention this here for those of you who are interested in, in drama and theater. I had uh, written the poetry, and I wrote short stories, and I moved to the novel. And the most difficult for me is the critical essay, and I did that. I wrote, uh, that's how I did the PhD in Germany. That was Massacre of the Dreamers. Was a, collection of essays that uh, were more a labor of love, an analysis of Mexican and Mexican-American women um, um, in this country. And um, someone mentioned to me that I had not done a play. So I set to writing a play. And I based that play on a story, a true story, about uh, a nun She's um, also from New Mexico by coincidence. She's from Grants. She's been a nun all her life since she was 16 years old. Uh, she was sent to uh, Central America uh, uh, in the 80s to be a missionary there. Uh, she has a very famous case. Uh, uh, when she was in, uh, in uh, Guatemala, she was uh, kidnapped, uh, underwent a horrendous uh, torture, um, and uh, managed to get away. 
she has been trying to have this government release all the details of her case under the Freedom of Information Act, which they have not. Her name is Sister Diana Ortiz. I wrote a very long poem about her that was published and I asked the impossible. Um, so I used that story with her permission uh, for my first play. Being that I'm a very obsessive writer, the first play was sort of an experimental style. Then I went out and got a book on how to write a play. And uh, so then I wrote a second, a second play uh, based on the same story, but this was sort of a traditional two-act play. If any of you are in the theater or you're interested in community theater or political theater, uh, the play has been, was produced uh, in Chicago and, and uh, twice and in various universities in the country. Uh, it's very easy to do. Uh, you can have two actors, stark background, um, and uh, you could put it on as, a, as an event or anything like that. Um, I'm just going to finish um, this reading, and if you have a couple of uh, questions for me, I'd be happy to answer. So, so you see sort of like the gist of the kind of uh, subject matter that has driven me for so long. Um, and uh, one night when I did live up in Albuquerque, I got to thinking that I had never really written a love poem. And you know, love poems are very difficult to write. I don't know if any, how many, I won't say if anybody, how many of you have tried to write a love poem. But it's very hard to write a love poem without sounding smarmy. You know, it's just kind of like gushy and cliche and all of that. So I worked very hard that evening uh, on this poem. And it's called, it's the title, uh, Poem of the Book, I Asked the Impossible. And it's, uh, the title of the poem is I Ask the Impossible. I ask the impossible, love me forever. Love me when all desire is gone. Love me with the single-mindedness of a monk. When the world in its entirety and all that you hold sacred advise you against it, love me still more. When rage fills you and has no name, love me. When each step from your door to your job tires you, love me. And from job to home again, love me when you're bored. When every woman you see is more beautiful than the last or more pathetic, love me as you always have, not as admirer or judge but with the compassion you save for yourself in your solitude. Love me as you relish your loneliness, the anticipation of your death, mysteries of the flesh as it tears and mends. Love me as your most treasured childhood memory, and if there is none to recall, imagine one, place me there with you. Love me withered as you loved me new. Love me as if I were forever, and I will make the impossible a simple act by loving you, loving you as I do. Gracias. Thank you. If you have a question or two, um, I'd be happy to. Yes. How do you think we got to Chicago? Well, <laughs> From Mexicans, we got to Chicago. That's what I'm asking is, like, what, what sort of experiences, and that's why I asked, not 
not just research. Cause right. My assumption is that when you want to write about something in a particular environment, you would research it, but probably more than just your standard library or internet research. You probably want to do something else to get more flavor out of it. I don't know. We didn't see if the flavor is there. <laughs> then let me know. Because I, I did. I, I did the, I do all of that, but I, for me, the, uh, I've always been a writer who is very much influenced by place, by environment, and so one of the most important things is I live in the environment. I don't think there is one border person. That's, that's why, for example, in this novel, there are four voices, and they're very different voices, and they're also at different ages and, and stages in their lives, so they have different histories. An 85-year-old man, 90-year-old man that, that, that was born when the Border Patrol was first in state and has a very different perspective than a 15-year-old boy who crosses over here and just wants to stay here to go to school, or maybe doesn't want to stay here and go to school. So if we, I don't think there's one, anything that's the problem, is that there's not just one. Um, so I uh, did my best with four voices, four different ages, three of them are male, one is a female. Um, in fiction versus nonfiction, I, I have written nonfiction, it's my most difficult um, uh, genre. It takes an immense amount of research. And I and not just sitting there in the library or at the internet or buying a bunch of books. And I do that for everything that I do, uh, everything that I write about. And sometimes I change my mind after I've done all of that and decide to write something else. But it's there in my head. So it's there become part of me, that history, the things I've read about. Um, but as opposed to the nonfiction, you know, you want to be as accurate to the voices and the people that you have interviewed and and you, and you need to, if you're doing journalism, I've also done articles, you want to quote things, you want to get the places and the, just the facts, ma'am, type of stuff. So the beautiful thing about fiction, as in poetry, is that you're making it up. You're making it up. I mean, if in a family, you grow up with five siblings and everyone has a different idea of who their mother was. So that's how it is, and so it, you, you bring in some, enough of that in your fiction, whether it's about being about from the border, or if it's about living on the moon, or if it's about living in, you know, um, in a kibbutz. You know, you bring in enough of that to, so that your reader plants their feet in there and says, that sounds real to me. I smell that smell. I can see that panorama. I hear that voice. I have a, an ear for, uh, for languages, and I try, and I love that, to put my ear to the, to the environment, wherever it is, not just in this area. So I want to be true to that. When I did So Far From God, which was in Albuquerque, um, I would ask people, I'm a uh, first language Spanish speaker. My Spanish wasn't the Spanish of northern New Mexico or Colorado. And I asked my housemate, and I, I would always double check, and I had one of those dictionaries, Southwestern dictionaries. Do you guys say it this way? No, we say it, we would not say it that way. We say it this way. Well, that's interesting. I love that. I go all over the world asking those kind of questions, and I try to stay as true to that. But what did I bring to that was enough of the human experience and enough of the Mexican experience or enough of the woman experience, whatever it is that you bring as a writer, whatever subject that you decide to, to ground your reader. And then your reader will go with you, you see. So that's the thing, is that there isn't one, one story. I can't write all the stories, and I'm not responsible for writing all the stories. You all are responsible for telling your, all your stories. That We all are. I haven't written my story yet. I write, I'm a storyteller. I write everybody's stories that I hear, and, and, and the same thing happens in the poetry. Um, I began writing when I was very young, and when I was very young, my poetry began to be used and uh, adopted in classes and anthologies and so on. And people, when I'd go to the, be invited to speak, they would say, well, you know, my professor says, you know, this, this poor girl, this, this Chicana, she's gone through so much. She's suffered so much, and you could see it in all her poems. A lot of those poems, I, I have compassion. But a lot of those poems were stories that people had shared with me, and I want to tell them. And sometimes I tell them in the first person. 
that's what poetry is about. Poetry is about feeling, translating it. So. Yeah. I, uh, in your reading, I thought that emotion, that passion, in the first chapter of the words of the Guardian. So I could relate to you already. As a reader, I was visualizing the story, you know, my great goal of Victor Benedict, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite things. But I think for you, I sense the, the Chicago movement, of your art cultura, and faith is real important to you. What, as a writer though, what, who was, which writer or a person that really uh, triggered your hot buttons to say, you know, I like your style, and you know, you want to be a writer. Was there a, was there a, a writer that you could say is a role model or somebody that yeah, I, there is definitely, uh, there, there is, and it's, you'd be surprised, and this is the thing that I think for maybe 20 years or 30 years, people that studied um, Chicano or Latino or, or, or the, the writing of minority American writers, they never really assumed that we would read outside of our immediate experience. Uh, the book that absolutely told me that I wanted to write and I wanted to write like that is a book called The Three, the Three Marias, New Letters to the Portuguese. Never heard of it, right? Well, back when I was a teenager, three women in Portugal <coughs> who were journalists um, decided to get together and write a book together. And what they did was they would meet once a week and they were, they, they picked a subject which was this none from the 16th century or something. It was a new letters of Portuguese nun. And so they made up, and all the names were like, all my name, Mariana, Ana Maria, that's my full name, and it's um, um, Maria, and none of them signed it. So they had this book that they all, they put together collectively. Back in those days, and that's the other thing is that I also came of age and in the 20s, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, countries were experienced a great deal of repression. All of Latin America was was going through that, and Portugal was too at this time. And so I heard about them, and I also read that book. And when their book came out, they were imme- immediately put in jail because there was a great uh, uh, censorship <coughs> in Portugal at that time. And just the fact that they were talking about sex and sexuality and the forbidden things from the church and you know all the kinds of mysteries and the horrible things that are now coming out and we can talk about them. At that time, we couldn't talk about it. When I read in a magazine that these three women had been in jail and then I saw an experimental play and I, that they had done on this too and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to say not what can be said but what is forbidden to be said. And that was the inspiration for me to, to write, and to write that way. I never found my other two Marias. I was looking for two women that I could write and change letters with, and we would all put them together anonymously and all get thrown to jail, in jail and you know, stick together. <laughs> and so I didn't find them, and so I wrote a, my first novel. was called The Miskiwola Letters, and they're letters. It's an epistolary novel, and they're letters written by one person to the other one. Uh, and that was from that influence from that book. So. Uh, so it was just as much the, the, the Catholic background as much as the um, Mexican background that also spoke to me when I was very young. And still does because I still play around a lot with it and I'm, I'm doing that. Now I'm working on a brand new novel that um, will hopefully be out next year. I'm hoping to finish it by the end of this year. And the very first, uh, the very first pages in the prologue, a priest is killed. So I'm still doing it. So I'm still inspired by those three Marias that had the courage to to um, address those things. Yes. Um, aside from being all, you're also an activist. And then, when you started reading the book, the writers you mentioned that back in 2005, you started thinking about it, and you mentioned uh, body smugglers and drug smugglers. That's called the worst thing today. Um, 
tell students, especially here in Michigan, about family and friends in Mexico, who maybe feel powerless. How do students or other people affect change in a seemingly difficult situation that's going on in Wattis or Miranda? All over. Well, body trafficking is the fastest, biggest growing criminal enterprise in the world, and it's being funded by the drug enterprise. That's a, that, that, there's certain things that will bother me, and I write about them, or have to mention them in every single thing that I write. So it's being, it, meant, it was mentioned in the Guardians, it's written about that, it's going to be again mentioned here, because that's really, that's what's, you know, if, 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 uh, uh, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, you know, uh, a multi-billion enterprise can buy everybody. They buy everybody, so that's why it's still going on, and that's what's going on. Um, when I first, uh, I, I've been back here for five years, and when I first got back here, I was in touch with some of the women organizers who go in and uh, organize some protesting and things like that, and very low, low turnouts. Um, I, I don't have the answer for some of that, except I, what I do is I write about it, I find every genre that I can, I speak about it as much as I can, talking is very important, bringing the consciousness to other people is very important. You might think you don't have any, any power, but by accepting it and trusting it, I, I remember five years ago a friend from Juarez said that you know, her mother and tias and everybody, they didn't really like to talk about it because they thought it was, you know, trayendo mala fama, you know, to the city and, but you've got to talk about it. So I think uh, that's part of it is, is having those discussions and those conversations to see where you can, what, where in your community you can put your energy in to do what's most important for you because there's a lot, there's a lot of fixing to do. And what I learned as a very young activist was if you won't try to do it all, you burn out very fast, very soon. And so what you have to do is choose the things, or if not the thing that means that much to you, that you're willing to give it that much, but that at the end of the day you can go to sleep and have the strength to wake up the next day and start all over again. You have to have a lot of courage with that. You have to also realize you'll make uh, with, you know, young people don't want to rock the boat, you know. Um, like young women will say, you know, about things like this, like um, with, with, the, with guys, why, why can't we just get along, you know, why can't we, you know, and it's, there are certain things that we have to talk about because that's what it, that's what's going on. And we have to talk about it. And we can't, and we, we would love to have everything be very nice and sweet and lovely and wonderful, but that's not the way it is. So we start out by, by um, accepting that and then deciding what we're going to do, what you can do. And so what I decided 30-something years ago, and that wasn't when I started as an activist, that was after a nervous breakdown, was what I could do is I could write about it and I could speak about it. So, um, uh, reading the poem that I wrote for Sister Diana Ortiz, uh, unbeknownst to me, the producer at National Public Radio went and investigated in that village where she had been tortured and did a whole piece of it. And things went on and, you know, uh, carried on from that. You never know who you're going to touch when you're, when you're doing that. But that's the beginning of it. Yeah. Well, because I came from um, uh, a very uh, 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 humble background, uh, parents who, you know, would have been very happy to see, uh, see see me, as with all their children, finish high school and, you know, go to work in a factory or, you know, work in some job like this and you know, have a nice, quiet life there and have my husband and five children. So my father used to always say, may rest in peace. All I want from you is five children. And so um, when I was a teenager and I became reading, uh, I was reading and watching the news. I'm still like that, kind of watching the news and reading. And found out that things were going on around the world and in our country and so on. 
uh, I realized that there was a plan for me as a Mexican girl, and that, that plan was a very narrow one, much, much, much more narrow than it is today. And having that conscientization, to know that that's what was set out for me, saved my life because then I, could, I was conscious enough to know that I wasn't going to fall into that, just follow along. So if you have an understanding of, of, uh, of, uh, of the politics of your city or your home or your community or your neighborhood or you're starting with your house, uh, your family, and then moving out to the broader uh, world, uh, then you have the ammunition to fight it. And that's how I was able to get out of that, break out of that. Break out of it so that I could work with other people to change that. Not break out of it so I could go work on Wall Street or something like that, but break out of it to, to change that for other people like myself. You know, Joanna? teachers were fighting for schools in the barrios and the neighborhoods. I saw, would see that on the news. And because we would have crummy, obviously crummy schools and kids drop out and so on, and so they were out there in the streets. In 1968, uh, I just started high school and from my window I could see when the National Guard came out um, in the, the Democratic Convention and they came out beating activists on the street. Uh, Chicago was uh, um, one of the cities that, that had the lowliest reception to Martin Luther King's march. When Martin, when Martin Luther King came to Chicago, his mar march from Montgomery, he marched through the streets of Chicago. And, I, and Chicago was notoriously racist. It was economically and ethnically divided, notoriously. You didn't leave your neighborhood if you didn't want to get your, you know, butt whipped or you have to go plan on doing that yourself. And anyway, he, with his courage, marched through one of the most racist neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, known for KKK and so on. That was, that's when I was just a girl. And so I was aware of those different things that were going on. I also was aware of Cesar Chavez way over there in California somewhere. As soon as I finished college, I got on a Greyhound bus and I moved to California and I joined the USW and met him and so on. So it was a very different time. And so uh, everywhere you could, you could turn around, you would see people had some sense of, of, uh, of uh, wanting to work toward uh, justice for, for minorities and for women and so on. Yes, I will. Uh, we were, but uh, not, you know, my, they were not like strict, devout, uh, people, but it was more of cultural, uh, what I call cultural Catholicism, you know, cultural Catholics. You know, we have the weddings and the baptisms and the quinceañeras and you go to midnight mass at Christmas and Easter, you have Easter Sunday and things like that, but, uh, but it wasn't, um, you know, uh, it wasn't a, a strict Catholicism, but it is something that works its way in, in a lot of my work. Can I ask you a, I guess a practical question? How, how do you carve time for writing? Uh, and like, what are your 
frightening habits or looked at them and advised you to get somebody who might be thinking about you know, making the time to, to write? Gotta write. Gotta find that time. I'm very, I'm very blessed at this point in my life, which you see the white hairs that took a while to get here, where I have, can carve out blocks of time now to do it. For a very long time, I didn't have that. I, and for a very long time, I was teaching last year. So uh, I go back and forth where I have some time, but I was a single mom. So I used to think before that, I used to think I was a nocturnal writer, you know, gotta stay up all night. And, cigarettes and writing away and, and then I had a baby and that changed everything and it was all about him for the next 25 years and so you know you go you know doing the carpool and you got to get given then you got to feed them and you got to bathe them and you got to do and all of that and so I would write wherever I could find the time so basically I, everyone asked that question because it's like where do I find the time so I also at one point I was working I don't know on how many books and I had three or four part-time jobs and working as a translator and all the all of these different things just to try to put it all together and putting the book you you have to want to do this book like uh, you have to tell yourself maybe other people around you aren't going to ignore yeah right you're writing a novel or you know yeah write poetry uh huh you know until you get a job you know so you get that kind of um, uh, uh, you know response from people so you give it that value and then you find that time in your day what works for you from my writer friends I know that they have set the alarm clock at 4 a.m. before they get the children up and write for an hour or two if that w if that works for you I know people that not here in in, um, in Las Cruces but like in big cities where you have to take a bus or a train to work they write on the way there and the way back and by the time they get home they've done a page every day um, you know so whatever whatever works for your body your energy and your schedule so I learned to work at any time so I here I thought I would only write at night and then I realized I have to write whenever I can so I've now that's what I do I write during the day and uh, when I can and when I and if I don't have that time maybe it's all weekend now what the schedule is will be three days, 12 hours, drop dead, you know, go do a couple of errands, write up, make up my bills, do whatever I have to do, go get the tortillas, come back, and then do another three days. That's about as much as my body can take. Yes? It's a very good question, Well, as I was telling this, the other gentleman, um, that uh, it's not, a story is not just told not, not necessarily it's once one person's voice right so at some point not right away but at some point I started to experiment uh, and I like to experiment when I'm writing just break all the rules you know don't listen to a people tell you how it has to be you just write you go ahead so I uh, made a copy of the first thing just in case the experiment went bad and so I tried another voice the second voice and I thought this when a character becomes very prominent like they want to start telling their own story you know then you got you got start giving them more space so then another character seemed like they should tell their version of it and that's how I ended up doing the four voices there are sometimes the stories are overlapping and they're telling the same story but they're telling it from their perspective. Um, do you ever come across people and you just find their story so special and their, their life is such a gift that you just have to document it? Maybe you're not using it right then, but you want to write down that story so that it stays? I think um, you hear um, anecdotes and not all anecdotes work, but sometimes anecdotes will work. Somebody tells you a little story. Gotta be very careful when you're around a writer, okay? It's all, you know, it's open season around a writer. So you're telling your story across the kitchen table or, you know, whenever at a party or something. And sometimes a, a, a piece of a story, something quirky or something that just kind of catches you might work into my into my writing 
But uh, up until now, no, I haven't written uh, someone's whole life story. Yes? May I say, hell yeah. <laughs> Not only yes, but hell yes. As a matter of fact, and now uh, when you publish, when the books are out, you know, people write reviews in papers and they write it on their uh, internet and their e-zines and they write wherever they are, they get the word out. And there's, there were a couple of pretty bad ones for this, this book, The Guardians, as a matter of fact. And I think, why would you have the energy to sit there and just lambast the book. Why don't you write about a book you like? You know, what would inspire you to just sit there just to put, tear something apart? But that, you know, once your work is out there, once your work is out there, meaning, if you write a poem, if you write a story, and you make a photocopy of it, or you print it out in your printer, you make two copies, you're, it's out there. Now it's out there. Now it belongs to the public. So they might, you know, they might like it and they might not like it and they have the right to say it. So how you respond to it or not. I have a couple of real quick announcements about the next uh, centennial speakers. October the 9th, we will have Rick Hendricks, and he wrote a new book about, I believe it's called 1801, A Priest's Report, and that's right before the period of independence, and he went back into the Durango archives and collected all the <coughs> priest's reports to their bishop, and so it's a really interesting book. He'll be speaking at the Farm and Ranch Heritage Museum at 7 o'clock, October 9th, and then on October 16th, um, John Nieto Phillips, who wrote The Language of Blood, will be speaking here at 3 in the afternoon. And we'd like to have you all attend. Thank you.